So picking up from uh, week one, what if God, this is our question last week, what if God does want us happy, right? What if spiritual happiness and gladness, rejoicing, all these words that the Bible uses, uh, blessed, which basically means more than happy, is the man who walks on the straight road of the Lord instead of the crooked road of destruction and, and sin. Happy is the man who walks that, that narrow, that, that straight, straight, straight road. Um, so the spiritual happiness, this joy of the Lord is really what we discovered last week is um, it's a gift from God, right? And it draws us both to himself and to obeying him. And not only to himself and obeying him, but it draws us to love and to serve other people, right? It, 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 it's kind of like joy and happiness turns us all into cookie monsters, right? Whenever we see an opportunity to, to love and to serve somebody, we're just like, right? Like joy and happiness is, is like, it just turns us into cookie monsters, right? So there's nothing wrong with wanting happiness. It's just a question of not exalting it over God or grasping for it without God, and so that happiness doesn't hurt us and other people, he chooses to deliver happiness to us through holiness and, and godliness. And something we're going to consider this morning, this idea of contentment. Right? To make us happy would have been extremely easy for God, right? He'd just ask nothing difficult of us and give us everything that we wanted, right? But to make us holy, to make us holy is rather time-consuming, involves some friction and some sparks and a little bit of pain, Right? But even in the dark times, we learned last week that the joy of the Lord is our hope. It's what keeps us going. Right? Happiness fuels our hope. It's when we lack the joy of the Lord, when we lack a hope in the Lord, right? that's when we get into trouble. We read last week, lack, lacking hope. We don't really believe that God can make us happy, and so we construct our happiness out of covetousness and lust. We don't wait to find the fulfillment of our existence in God, and so we shape an artificial identity grounded in pride. See, when we look for happiness apart from God's wise and, and good counsel, what seems right at the time, what seemed right, turns out not so right. right? And then misery ensues, and, and we lose hope. But the fact of the matter is... And we, we, Spending some time in God's word, this message comes just, it screams at us, right? That God is always at work in making our joy complete, right? Making our joy and our happiness complete. The psalmist, the psalmist put our, our honest thoughts, our honest wishes into words. In Psalm 68, verse 3, it says, But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before the Lord. May they be happy and joyful. Last week we concluded, based on Everything that we looked at, right, uh, I think that believers and followers of Jesus Christ probably ought to be the most happy people on earth, right? In fact, this is, this is what Paul, this is, I think this is his reason behind his instruction. He's, he's writing this in a letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi. This is in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says this, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice, and to be clear as to the source of our happiness, right, rejoice in the Lord, hit that next slide there, in the Lord. And then to be clear just how often and in what circumstances we should have joy and rejoicing in the Lord, always rejoice in the Lord, always. But the fact of the matter is if people were to watch us closely, they might come to a different conclusion. They might 
see a different story, right? They might believe that we're saying rejoice in money always, right? I say it again, rejoice in money. How many of you guys are planning on the lottery or the stimulus check or money? It's like, if I, as soon as I get that, I'll, just, I'll be a little bit happier. I'll be a little bit less stressed, a little bit of anxiety, like money. Last week, lots of folks might have concluded, hey, being rich will make me happy. There, pastor, <laughs> you say that God wants me happy? I'll just tell him how he could make me happy, right? Help me win the lottery. I will be so happy. I will be so happy. And God, you'll be happy too because I'll give so much away to good causes. Right? Let me win the lottery, man, and I'll, and I'll cut you in, God. I'll, I'll cut you in on a piece of the action. And, I, and I've talked to people, and I believe this is their prayer. Lord, let me win the lottery, and, and I'll give you a cut, and then we'll all be happy. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be awesome. Let me ask you a question. Just kind of see where you stand on this thing, right? Because some of you are going, no, no, that's not. Which would bring you greater joy and happiness, winning the lottery or donating that entire check to God's cause? I mean, just just simple question. Which would bring you greater joy? Now, it's okay if they both bring you joy. Again, I don't think God is against our happiness, is against joy or anything like that. But when the pursuit of joy and happiness takes us around God and not through God, I think we're going to be in trouble. I think Jesus nailed it when he spoke these words recorded by Matthew. Here in chapter 6, verse 21, it says this. These are Jesus' words written by Matthew. For where your treasure is, there's your heart. There your heart will be also. In other words, if everything that a person values is in this world, is of this world, then the things of Christ and the things of his kingdom... They don't really matter. Now, on the other hand, a person who throughout their life, if they have their eyes on eternity, they have their eyes on Christ, then the things of this world, they tend to hold on less tightly, a little more loosely, because they know it's fleeting. They know it's going to be gone in a while. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove and a choice has to be made, Right, I got 10 bucks in my pocket. Here comes the offering plate. Oh, I was really looking forward to a Doubledale burger, right? I don't need it. Lord knows I don't need it. But now I'm going to be, now, now I've got a quandary. Like I'm going to be angry either at myself or I'm going to be angry at God. If I don't get that burger, I'm going to be angry at God. And if I get the burger, God's not going to be real thrilled. And I'm going to, I don't know, feel a little bit of shame, right? There, there's a struggle. There's a struggle going on inside me. So at the end of the day, when that choice must be made, the human heart can only serve one master. Christ made this so clear to us. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Kind of like my thought process I just went through as the plate passed. Maybe you've had that same thought process. You cannot serve both God and money. And this isn't a commandment, folks. Right, that you can choose to obey or not obey. Jesus is just saying, like, this just is just the way it is. This is the way the human heart works. <laughs> right? You don't choose <laughs> to have your heart work the way it works. It, it just does. It involuntarily, it just that's the way it works. So I'm curious. Again, let's do a couple experiments. See where you stand, right, on this whole money issue. Because money kind of it, it sneaks up on us, right? This this love of money. Right when I was little, I, I, maybe you went through this. When I was young, I got my first job. I had found Christ, and, and I was just excited, and I was like, Lord, everything is yours, right? My $40 paycheck, 
it's yours, man. I was just so excited. And then I grew older and I, I, I got more stuff. <laughs> and, now, and now it's like, um, <laughs> you can have anything that I don't really want, need, or desire. <laughs> now, I, I fight that because I, I give 10% straight off the top, right? That, that's my way and that's the way Christians have for thousands of years. They've at least 2,000 years, that's the way they've kind of fought this thing. It's like, you know, 10% right off the top, right? That just, bam, right, right there. Crazy thing is, the statistics for Christians, less than 2%, right? We'll fill out the questionnaire and we'll fill out the survey. Yeah, I give 10%, I tithe. But the fact of the matter is, at best, Christians, not the world in general, but Christians, 2%. Because the fact of the matter is, when it comes to money, it's easy to trust God when the stakes are low. But when the stakes are high, right, we tend to trust money instead of God. It's easy to trust God with 40 bucks. But man, with, the, with, with a whole paycheck, whoo-wee. So again, curious, a couple, couple thought experiments. Let me ask you two questions. Well, I just asked you one, so we're going to go with two and three. Would just a little bit more money make your life a little bit more better, happy? Kind of answer that. Got to buy yourself. And if you said yes or if you hesitated, you've bought into the lie, right, that money will buy you happiness, right? You, you got one foot. You got one foot in the grave. I, 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 gotta, I hate to tell you that. Second question, how much more money would it take to make you happy? In other words, how much is enough? And my guess is I know for every single person hearing my voice, I know exactly how much that amount is. Here's the answer, a little bit more than you currently have. I can almost guarantee it. Every single one of you sitting there going, man, if I had just, just a little bit more, I would be so happy. I would, I would, I would be so, I would just be giddy. I would just, everything would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So why do we struggle so much with money? The Apostle Paul offers this piece of wisdom to his protege, Timothy. Paul's an older guy. I don't know how old he is. Timothy's younger. And as you read through the Bible, you, you find that, that that, that Timothy is like, uh, again, Paul's student, right? He's almost like a rabbi, and he, he's got a student, Timothy. And he's, he, he writes a couple letters, First and Second Timothy, to Timothy, instructing him, all right? And in this piece, of, and, and by the way, I'm going to be looking at three letters of Paul. I'm going to be looking at this passage from Matthew chapter 6, but I'm also going to be looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the, the letter to the Philippines, Philippians. Boy, I always mess that up. Um, his letter to Timothy, his first letter, and his second letter to the church at Corinth, the second Corinthians. So I'm going to be bouncing around between these three letters, so you're just going to have to buckle in and keep your fingers in your Bible. That, that's where you want to be, so, all right, follow along. Um, in this passage, this is what he says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, understand something very, very important here. Contentment wasn't the goal. Contentment isn't our goal. Contentment was never even Paul's goal. Right? Godliness or holiness, it doesn't lead to contentment, right? Godliness isn't a means to contentment. Godliness and holiness and contentment, they all kind of sit on the same shelf, right? And they're, they're really all three combined a means to an end, and that end is the joy of the Lord and happiness. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit, but I'm going to continue with this one here with Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He explains our issue and our struggles with money. He says this, For we, bought, we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, we looked at that last week, right? Seeking happiness, seeking money to bring about happiness is kind of a shortcut around God's chosen method of, of holiness and godliness, right? We, we, we kind of do an end around, right? Paul then concludes with the line that Pink Floyd, those of you who are into rock and pop culture, Pink Floyd got it wrong. I'll just let you know. They had written that money is the root of all evil, but that's, that's not true. That's not true at all. Here's what Paul actually said. Verse 10, for the love of money, not money. This is incredibly important. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So now I'm going to show you the very best piece of financial advice you will ever, ever receive. And this is from the, the creator of all wealth, right? So, so this is like um, a step above Warren Buffett, right? Just a little bit better advice than Warren will give you. This is straight from the creator of all wealth. This is back in chapter 6 of Matthew. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So why not store up treasures for ourselves? It's not because earthly treasures are bad. They're not bad at all. It's just that they won't last. They're fleeting, right? We looked at that last week. They're fleeting. Richest guy who ever lived said this about riches. By the way, his name was Solomon. He says this. He wrote a lot of the Proverbs. This is in chapter 23, verse 5. It says, cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's a great picture, right? So next time you're thinking about like this shopping trip, just picture your purchase <laughs> flying off, right? Right right out of your fingertips, right? right? You walk out of the store and, oh, there it goes, right? Probably sooner than later if your experience is anything like mine. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like living in 1865, Right? Y'all know what happened in April of 1865, the Civil War ended. But imagine if you're living in, oh, January, February, and you've got a whole horde of Confederate notes, right? Now, if you're wise, if you're smart, you're going to hold back a few of those, but you're going to turn the vast majority of it in for union money because you know at this point the Confederacy is going to lose, right? So convert your money. Convert it into what's going to be useful in the future, if you're smart, you're going to keep only enough of that Confederate money for short-term needs, but the vast majority of your savings, of your stash, convert it. See, when Jesus returns or, or when you die, <laughs> your earthly currency will be worthless. And, you know, if you had thought, well, I'm just going to save it and I'm going to, I'm going to give it to my kids, a couple things are going to happen there. If you got a lot of money, it's probably going to wreck them because they didn't earn it and they had no idea really the value of it, right? So you're going to, not only are you going to wreck them if you give them too much, you're also going to, you're also going to rob yourself of the joy of giving. It, it, we're going to dig into this more and more in these letters that Paul writes, but there is tremendous joy in giving. There's not all that much joy in having a huge bank account and dying, right? You, all right, I'll get off that for just a second. 
Here's the second piece of financial advice from Jesus, right? The first one, don't store up treasures for yourself in the wrong place, in the wrong time. The second one, it says this, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, if we had stopped at verse 19, we would have concluded that Jesus was against treasures. He's not. He's all for it, right? In fact, he commands it. He's just saying, stop investing it in confederate currency and start investing it in kingdom currency. That's all he's saying. So what should we be investing in? How should we be using God's money that currently resides in our bank accounts? <laughs> That's crazy. Jesus tells several really great stories, kind of interrelated stories. You really, you can't look at just one. You kind of got to look at all of them and compare them and contrast them. And there's two really big ones. And the fact that uh, the, the writer Luke in his gospel, really sharp, he puts them back to back because that's really where they needed to be, these two incredible stories of really, really, really rich people. One chooses poorly, one chooses wisely. And, he, and it's just right there for us to see. We're going to start in chapter 18 of Luke. Right, so we're going to be looking at Luke 18 and Luke 19 very quickly. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. We're going to start at Luke 18. We're going to start with a rich young ruler. Many of you have heard of him. It says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And basically what he's asking is, what, what, how do I need to be prepared to enjoy the life to, enjoy the life to come? Right? I don't want to be burdened. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be in pain or sorrow because the age of coming is supposed to be all joy. What do I do? What do I got to do now to make sure that I, that I get everything that God wanted for me? After claiming to love God and the neighbor, Jesus tested his convictions. He basically challenges the young ruler to choose his master. Remember, you can't have two masters. So Jesus challenges him. He says this in verse 22, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Like we bag on the guy, right? I would never answer like that. But here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. We look around, we, we're here in North America, United States of America, the land of, the land of plenty, right? Just, just so much. We look around, all this wealth, and we conclude... I may not be rich compared to the whole, like, $2 a day, third world, you know. Every pastor comes up and, like, hey, you're rich compared to, you know, 80% of the rest of the world. Um, and you might say, yeah, that's all good and fine. But where I live, I don't feel rich. Where I am in my context, I'm str I, I was listening to a, Ravi, an incredible apologist, and he says this. He says, the strangest thing, talk about questions about pain and suffering when you go to a third world country he's from india he says you don't have christians asking that question you go to asia you don't have questions about pain and suffering because it's just a part of life he says it, he found it very fascinating the only place that he goes he speaks all around the world he said the only place that that question keeps coming up is in places where there's plenty not weird he says america and europe they ask that question. Nowhere else is that an issue. Like we're, we're, we're stewing in our own juices. <laughs> we don't feel rich. So what do we do? We double down on the sickness rather than looking for the cure. 
more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Now I'll be happy. Ah, didn't work. Ah, more stuff. Ah, didn't work. Instead of looking for the cure, and that coincidentally is revealed in the next story, right? And this is a really, really rich guy. He does not claim to love God like the rich young ruler. He doesn't claim to love people. In fact, he's robbing both God and people. Like this guy is the scum of the earth. His name's Zacchaeus, right? You met him just a little bit earlier. In Luke chapter 19, the very next chapter, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. You saw him on, on the video that was clearly not Douglas. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Basically, he had implicit permission to rob the people, right? And as a chief tax collector, he had a bunch of other tax collectors working underneath him in which they took their cut, and then he took a cut of their cut. This guy was rolling in money, right? This guy was living large, living large. And my guess is he probably wasn't tithing, right? So he's robbing God too. Wild guess, it does not say that, my, my guess. But Zacchaeus had to see and hear about this Jesus guy, right? This guy that Jesus, who promised to bring wholeness and healing. And maybe even selfish people who had lost their way, right? See, I think I, I get the impression that Zacchaeus had really, really believed at one point in his life, if I have a lot of money, I will have a lot of friends, and I will I, therefore I will have a lot of happiness, and I will have a lot of joy. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know, I don't know how pervasive is, this is, um, but you get the impression that he, he got his money, he got his wish, and then people hated him. They didn't like him. They hated him, right? Because they knew where he got, their, where he got his wealth. So his whole plan is like totally backfiring because he, he chose to work around God. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe these people that hate me, maybe Jesus can figure this out for me, right? Because it, it's not working the way I... I had planned it the way it was supposed to work. Zacchaeus could only hope that Jesus could show him a way, like a, a way back. It says this in verse 5 and 6, when Jesus looked, reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, for I must come to your house for tea. Yeah, that'll be forever in my head. Um, I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So apparently, you know, they head off to Zacchaeus' house and they're having this life-giving conversation inside and Zacchaeus is like just, arr, 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 you know, eating it up, just eating it up, right? Apparently, the gossips showed up. You see this in the little film clip we saw. Uh, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But apparently, Zacchaeus had heard, had been with Jesus long enough before all the gossips showed up and started blah, 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 blah. He'd heard enough. He had figured out the secret, to lasting joy and happiness without any prompting by Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler, like, tell me what I got to do. I, I have no idea. Zacchaeus got it. He just, he, he got it. It made sense to him. And in verse 8, he says, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay four times that amount. And Jesus replied to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. See, unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus was so hungry for salvation and, and fellowship with Jesus. And he was so sick and tired of what the world was offering up as lies. 
right? He had bought into those lies, and he had recognized that they were, in fact, lies. He easily released his hold on this worldly wealth that he had gathered up for himself to grab something far more valuable. And God blessed him, right? In the terminology of the New Testament, uh, God made him more than happy, right? He blessed them. Listen to this, chapter 5, Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. That's Zacchaeus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will, be, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That, that's Zacchaeus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's Zacchaeus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Zacchaeus is like my new hero. And I get the impression that having known wealth, Paul knew wealth. I mean, if you guys know the, his background, he was probably one of the wealthiest of wealthies. But then he met Jesus. And having thought about what Jesus had said and warned against, he's now eager to warn Timothy. Like, Timothy, man, I got to tell you, there's a trap out there. There's a huge lie out there that there's not enough. This, li- this scarcity, this, this lie from Satan, that there's not enough. So Paul is really, really directing his warning. He says this in chapter 6 of his letter to Timothy. Verse 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Right? Just like Jesus said in in Matthew. Verse 18 and 17 and 18. "Um, But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our what? Our enjoyment. Right? I know a lot of you are struggling with that, but I truly believe that he wants us to be joyful, but he wants it to be found in him. Right? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will, right, straight out of Jesus' mouth, right, from, from Matthew's gospel. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, Paul had discovered that the joy of the Lord was in imitating Jesus. So Paul had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. Listen to this letter. This is, this is his letter from the church. We're st- I'm going st- to go back to chapter 4. We're, we're at the very beginning of my message. Paul's saying rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in everything, Right? Still in chapter 4, Paul's telling Timothy to rejoice in absolutely everything. And this is even as he's lying in prison, right? This is where he's writing the letter from. He's lying in prison, right? He knows that the church at Philippi is setting out on their way. There's going to be dark days ahead. There's going to be persecution. Like, he knows all this. And he says, look, I know what I'm saying. I've thought about everything that could possibly happen. I've thought it all through. And I still say rejoice. I still say rejoice. Picking up in verse 12, he says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Right? And again, important to understand here, we talked about a little bit earlier, contentment wasn't the end goal. It was rejoicing in the Lord was the goal. But contentment was Paul's way of finding lasting joy. 
right? Contentment has an aspect of godliness, right, or holiness through which we have joy in the Lord. If you were a Buddhist, contentment would be your actual goal, right? Because to be happy would lead to pain when you lost what was making you happy because all the things of this world perish and thieves break in and steal them. So Buddha kind of got it partially right, but he never took into account the happiness that, that, that Christ could deliver us from, the, from his riches in glory, right? Buddha, he only knew about the riches of the world, but Christ knew that his riches in glory wouldn't rust. It wouldn't. It would never lead to pain and, and sorrow. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's not everything. It's everything that God has called me to do. He has equipped me. He has provided for my needs. He has he, everything. The joy of the Lord doesn't perish. So it's a worthy goal that's attainable, right? And then in verse 17, he says the strangest thing. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account, right? It almost sounds like, yeah, I didn't need your gift. But really what he's saying is um, the, the joy of the gift <clears throat> was really for them, right? Because he knew that they had figured out the secret. The secret was in giving and serving in others. It's not in hoarding. It's in giving and serving. And they had discovered the secret. It wasn't that he didn't value the gift for its own sake, but his greatest joy was in it and the love which prompted it. He knew was dear to God. See, in Paul's mind, the Philippians had figured out the secret. It had made their joy complete, and it also made Paul's joy complete, like Joy all around. Paul then concludes his thoughts on what it takes to be filled with happiness and joy in this world. And my God will meet all of your needs also. Right? The whole, the whole chapter is like he's met all of my needs, and my God will meet your needs too according to the riches of his glory in heaven. Now, meet and needs, those are two Greek words that are very, very related. What they really mean is not just I'm going to meet your need barely. I'm going to meet your need till it overflows right? I'm not just going to meet, I'm going to be more than enough. I'm not just going to be enough. I'm going to be more than enough. These are what these words mean, to meet all of your needs. And what does it mean to be according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus? What are those riches and glory? Well, it's an inexhaustible supply, right? God would provide them because God provides for those who provide for others. The riches of his glory. So the question kind of I have for us is how many of us are still trying to find happiness by the riches of our own glory? Where are you finding your happiness and joy from? Where are you digging? Is it in your glory? Is it from your stash or is it from God's heavenly stash? See, God has a system which has an unlimited supply while the world has a system with a very limited supply. See, by faith and by tithing, we select to live from God's riches in glory by Christ Jesus because what Paul's saying is everything good comes from Jesus. Everything good comes from Jesus reestablishing your connection to your heavenly Father so that you can experience everything that he had for you. It all comes through Jesus. A couple chapters back, Paul shows us how Jesus did it. Chapter 2, verse 5, And your relations with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And this is where it gets amazing. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. Just catch that, that, that what I highlighted there. He, he exalted him, but we, can, we are free to read into this that when we act like Christ, God exalts us. He lifts us up. We can't do what Christ did, but we're called to be like Christ. We're called to be Christ-like and to do the things that he did to give ourselves up for others. This is the blueprint for us to find joy and happiness. And this is what gave, what Scripture says, gave Christ, this is what completed Christ's joy. Like he could not have any more joy until this was done, until he was obedient, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Question. How many of us are still trying to meet our needs out of our own riches and glory? Here's how the Macedonian church has responded to the needs of others. This is in 2 Corinthians Paul's writing, trying to encourage the Corinthians to get it. Like the Philippine, the Philippian church had got it, the, the Macedonian, the Philippi churches in Macedonia, they had all got it. They, they, they understood. And he says this, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So they're poor, and yet they're being generous. Most of us, we bought into the lie that if you're poor, you don't need to be generous. God's okay with you being stingy and selfish because you don't have enough. They didn't buy into this lie. They, they didn't believe it. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, and here's the kicker, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. Not like, ah. It's like, please, please take it all. Because I know the joy of the Lord is in giving and serving, and it's not in hoarding. They knew the route to lasting joy and happiness in the Lord. They'd seen it in Paul. They'd experienced it on their own. And they'd heard about it in Jesus. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, this is, think back to chapter 2, Verses 5 through 11, he thought it nothing that he had all these abilities, and yet he, he made himself poor. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Richland, Church of the Nazarene, can we find that place of contentment? that will release us to joyfully serve our community by way of our riches? I'm going to carefully say this because we're online. God has blessed this church with amazing people, with amazing willingness to give to the cause. God has richly blessed this church. So, 
What if? What if there is more than enough? What if money really isn't the issue? And what if scarcity is a lie? Again, because the whole scarcity lie, we understandably, we're, we're tight-fisted with our money, right? But when that attitude slips into our spiritual lives, we're in trouble, right? Because if everything I've said this morning is true, you will never experience foop with God, right? You guys know understand what foop is, right? Fear of overpaying, right? I love the commercial on TV. We have this fear. We're so tight-fisted. We're so careful with our money. But like when we give it to God, when we, when we purchase into his kingdom, like there's no foop. You never have buyer's remorse. It's, it's amazing. Closing words of advice here. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Guaranteed. Give long enough and you're going to become like Christ. You're going to become like Christ. We're most like God when we're giving. So again, on this next slide, I want you to continue this conversation at home, right? What did you learn today? You know, have a conversation in, in the living room. Um, I shouldn't, shouldn't just end when I'm done talking. Uh, tackle these. Let's close in a word of prayer. And, and don't leave yet. We've got an amazing, amazing choir production for you. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for showing us the secret to joy and happiness. And it's not in hoarding, but it's in giving. It sounds so counterintuitive, but, but Father, eons people have been discovering this is absolutely true, both Christian and non-Christian. It's when we give and we lift up each other that we really find joy and happiness, Father. Thank you for making this so clear for us. In your name we pray. Amen.